My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said in the announcements. If you're here for the first time, and I do see a bunch of visitors, I think, uh, with us this morning, uh, we want to welcome you, first of all, and also to say that if you're uh, curious about anything that happens, you know, every church has its own personality, and we do things a little differently. Don't hesitate to ask what that was, that thing that you didn't necessarily know what was going on, or, or if you're interested maybe in learning more about our church, uh, getting to know some people, come back next week, because we have a lunch after the single 10 a.m. service next week, and lunches are always a good chance to get to know people, of course. Uh, this morning, it's my pleasure to welcome my friend, the Reverend Dr. Roland DeVries to Courtright. As part of our hospitality sermon series, we have wanted to not only hear from within, from me and from Allison, but also uh, voices from outside of our church of people who are working in maybe untraditional ministries of different kinds, not congregational ministries anyway. And Roland uh, is here today to to bring a voice from outside Courtright in a way. Uh, Roland and his wife Becky are originally from Ontario, but they have lived in Montreal now for 20 years with their three kids. And uh, their kids, one of the delightful things about our friendship is that our kids have become friends too uh, through going to Pioneer Camp in the summers. And I think actually um, you and Becky met at Knox when I was there, right? So when I was the young adults pastor. So in a way, all your fruitfulness comes back to me, I guess. Yeah. No, that's that. scratch that from the record, please. Um, Roland has served as a pastor in two congregations in Montreal. And of course, Quebec is a very different place from Ontario when it comes to church work and uh, the life of a Christian. So um, Roland brings that valuable perspective, too. Uh, Most recently, he was the pastor of Kensington Church for seven years. And he arrived there when the congregation was building rich and mission poor. And he led them through a process of downsizing their huge facility, selling off a significant part of it, and designing a smaller, more versatile space for them to worship in and, and have community events in. And under his leadership, the congregation uh, went from having an annual $100,000 deficit to a zero, a deficit of zero by the time he left. Uh, the church also started, and I think this is partly due to Roland, I don't want to um, embarrass him too much, uh, but uh, the church started a bunch of new missional uh, initiatives while he was there, including, I'll just give one example, uh, a really uh, creative jazz vespers program, which invited people from the community, people who weren't even believers in some cases, to participate and created this wonderful creative overlap. Um, Roland is a graduate of the University of Guelph, uh, also of Regent College in Vancouver, and more recently completed his PhD at McGill in the philosophy of sexuality and gender. And uh, when I said this this morning, um, uh, let me say it first, uh, I called him an expert in marriage, and his mic was turned on this morning, and he laughed over there uh, at the suggestion that he was an expert in marriage. Um, and then I prayed for his marriage, so that that that, that worked out. But since 2015, uh, Roland has been on faculty at Presbyterian College at McGill, where he also serves as Director of Pastoral Studies. He teaches in the area of mission, of uh, 
theology and global Christianity. Uh, some of us have gotten to know Roland. We've had, a, I think, around 20 people from Corrade who have participated in the missional imagination course that's been going on since the fall, sponsored by our presbytery. And uh, it's been fun, I know, for all of us to get to know Roland and to really have our imaginations stirred by what we've heard, stories of church plants and fresh expressions of the gospel in ways that maybe we hadn't imagined before. And as we continue on that process as a church, it's exciting uh, to have Roland here today and just to, to listen to what God might be leading us to do. So Roland, if you want to come up, I'm going to pray for you, and then we look forward to, to hearing you preach from God's Word. Dear God, I thank you for Roland, and I thank you for the way you've called him uh, to the ministry of being a professor and a mentor to students who are training to be pastors, but also to others who are taking courses, just wanting to grow in their faith. And, and I pray for fruit from the course that has just concluded this weekend in our presbytery. Uh, Lord, we ask for renewal in our congregations, in your church across Canada. I pray for Roland and Becky, and I do pray again for their marriage. Um, I pray for their kids. I pray that you would protect them and watch over them, that you would bless them. Uh, I pray for for Roland's work at Presbyterian College and for our denomination, uh, that that you would bring renewal, uh, you would guide us uh, to a focus, a renewed focus on Christ and on his mission in the world. Um, And I pray for Roland as he preaches this morning from your word. Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to be back uh, at Courtright. I've been here on and off since I was an undergrad at Guelph, uh, which was some time ago. And uh, so it's good to be back, and it's been great to get to know some of the members of the congregation through the missional imagination uh, over the past uh, six months, and uh, just connecting with your congregation, hearing a little bit about your life and uh, what's happening here. And uh, it's always good to hang out uh, with Alex uh, and to have uh, a good time uh, sharing together in ministry, but also just in friendship. So glad to be with you this morning and grateful to be able to open scripture with you as we look together at this passage from uh, the book of Acts. And so we are going to read from uh, Acts uh, chapter 16. I think it'll be on the screen for you. Uh, Acts 16 verses 6 uh, through 15. So let us listen to the word of God. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. 
she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to the message, to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Or as some texts say, she prevailed upon us. Or yet another text, she compelled us uh, to come and stay at her house. This morning, as we look at this text, we're going to do something that, or I'm going to do something that ministers often do, or pastors sometimes do, and that is to find a little opening in the text to try and get uh, my shoulder into it, to pry it open, and to get some meaning out of a particular verse that may not, on the surface of it, look like it has a lot of meaning uh, to give to us. And the little verse that we're looking at, the specific verse, is is verse 15 of, of chapter 16. And this is what it says again, though we just read it. When Lydia and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged us to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. And the question I ask when I read that little verse is this question. Why does the text say that Lydia urged Paul and company to stay at her home? And then... It seems as if that urging wasn't enough. Why the need for a little bit more of a push? As we read, she prevailed upon us to stay at her home. The Greek word that lies behind that word prevailed suggests almost a higher degree of force. She compelled us. She sort of took hold of us and wanted us to stay at her home. Lydia had to invite them twice, it seems. She had to prevail upon them. She had to constrain them to stay at her house. And what this suggests is that Paul and his fellow travelers were resistant to the invitation. They wanted to move on. They wanted to get going. They didn't want to take her up on this invitation she had very graciously extended to them. They didn't want to go there. She urged them, come to my house. They said, maybe not. She said again, no, really, I want you to come and stay with me while you're here in Philippi. I have a home. You need a place to stay. Come and stay at my place. Already we're trying to get a little bit of meaning out of what is a very uh, narrow text, a narrow opening in the text. And I want to push it even a little bit further this morning, and we're going to do that by backing up and seeing how we've ended up here uh, in the first place. Paul, as you know, perhaps is in the middle of what we call one of his missionary journeys. He's on the road. He's traveling from city to city. We've heard this number of cities named in this text this morning. Along the way of his journeys, he is encouraging Christian communities, these small Christian communities that are arising in the whole Mediterranean region. He's teaching them about Jesus. He's encouraging them in their life of faith their life of faith in this Jesus who is the Messiah, the Christ. Along the path of that journey, he's also introducing Christ to people who've never heard this before, who've never heard about this one who is the Messiah. And you may know that when Paul arrives in a new city, invariably the first place he goes is to the local synagogue. The message of Jesus is first of all rooted in and tied up with the covenant people of God, the Jewish people. Of course, Jesus himself is Jewish. The earliest Christians were Jewish women and men. That's where the formation and identity of the church uh, first arose, which was in fact first a sect within uh, Judaism. But then there's a problem when Paul comes to Philippi. 
He comes to this Roman city in this colony, and there is no synagogue. We don't know why. It may be that there wasn't a large, large enough Jewish population in that city. It may be that they didn't have enough resources or wealth to build a synagogue. Whatever is the case, they don't have a synagogue. And yet Paul hears that there is this Jewish group that seems to gather, and they gather out in a public space out by the river. They gather for prayer and worship outside of the city in this open-air area by the river. And so that's where Paul goes. Instead of going to the synagogue, he goes to this open place outside the town. And as often happens, we don't know how or why, but when Paul arrives in that place, he's invited to speak. He's invited to share a message about God and God's people. And so Paul does what he does when he's in that context. He shares about Jesus. He shares his conviction that through Christ, God is reconciling all things uh, to himself. He shares that Jesus is the one through whom the promises of God to Israel are coming to fulfillment. He shares with them his conviction that the future belongs to Jesus and the day of the Lord when Jesus will return and make all things new. Which brings us to Lydia. We don't know much about her from this text. She is likely what is called throughout the New Testament and in some of the early literature, probably a God-fearer. That means she's not Jewish, but she is someone who is invested in the covenant people of God and invested in their worship of God. We know that she is not from Philippi. The text says that she comes from Thyatira. She's a migrant from another city to this particular Roman city. We also know that she's a woman who deals in purple cloth. That's how she makes her living. And some interpreters suggest that, in fact, she may bear the marks of her trade in her body. It's possible that her arms and her hands are actually stained purple from the work that she does. We can also say that it seems that Lydia has gathered a group of women around herself. There's a group of women, the text says, they're gathered outside the city by the river. And contrary, perhaps, to what we commonly hear, it is possible and even likely that these women don't achieve much more through their work than just a subsistence living. Uh, The Greek historian Plutarch, who lived around the same time, makes the following reference to purple cloth and those who dealt in it, who created it. He says, often we take pleasure in a thing, but we despise the one who made it. Thus we value aromatic salves and purple clothing, but the dyers and the salve makers remain for us common and low craftspersons. Think of this, and it's not hard to imagine, I think, for any of us going to Starbucks often. I've got my hand and my phone in my hand, and I'm asking for my coffee, and I'm paying more attention to my phone than I am to the one who's making my coffee. Maybe it applies also to the vegetables we buy in the grocery store. We may pay more attention to the beautiful red peppers than we do to the migrant workers who are working in the fields, uh, bringing those to our table. Here we have Lydia, a woman, a God-fearer, a migrant, possibly stained in her body by her work. Lydia, a craftsperson, making just enough to get by, making purple cloth that is appreciated even as she is not uh, appreciated. And there at that public space out by the river, Lydia listens to Paul. Without filling the details of how or why, an astonishing thing happens. The text tells us that her heart was opened to his message. 
Lydia listens to Paul talking about the promises of God in Christ, and her heart is opened. She believes what she is hearing. All of this makes so much sense to her in terms of what she has heard of the stories of the people of God as a God-fearer. She comes to believe that this Jesus is the one through whom God is reconciling the world to himself, that Jesus does lead us into fullness of life. This Jesus is our source of forgiveness. He is raised to life, and I am raised to life with him. She thinks to herself and believes to herself, it's an amazing and beautiful thing that I believe and am on my way to believing even more deeply. And what happens next? Almost immediately, so little detail is given. She's baptized. The other women who work with her in fabric, they are baptized with her, her household. They enter into the resurrection life of the crucified, the risen, and the ascended Jesus. Now here is where we are again trying to pry open this text a little bit. Upon being baptized, Lydia realizes something. She realizes the need of Paul and Timothy and Silas, this little group that is on this missionary journey, She realizes they don't have a place to stay necessarily in Philippi. They may well be tired and hungry. We don't know. In the light of this, Lydia says, come, stay with me. Come and stay with this group of women. Stay in this household. She says to Paul, let me provide hospitality to you. Come and stay with me. We can do There's lots of room. We can make do with what we have. We can talk more about Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. Again, Paul seems to be resistant. Thanks, Lydia. But I think we can find another place to stay. We'll make other arrangements. Don't don't bother yourself. But Lydia won't give up. In fact, we could say that she claims her right through baptism. She claims her identity as a sister in Christ. She claims her identity as one who is a fellow follower of this Messiah. She claims her role as a conversation partner with Paul. On that neutral territory out by the river, that's what they were. They were conversation partners. That place where they gathered, it didn't belong necessarily to Lydia. It didn't belong necessarily to Paul. It was an open space of conversation where each one was free to stay or go, to listen or to not listen, to engage or to disengage. But now, as covenant partners in Christ, she wants to provide a space of conversation and hospitality for Paul on his journey. But Paul doesn't want to stay in the home of Lydia. Paul seems not to want to be her guest. He hears her making this claim as a sister in Christ, but he remains resistant to that claim. Of course, it's not always easy to be a guest, is it? In very general terms, to be a guest sometimes means to be in a vulnerable or uncomfortable situation. You have to fit into a place that is not your own when you are a guest to someone else. If you're in someone else's home, we don't even know, always know what we can touch or what we can't touch. 
Which bathroom should I use? Is this the common bathroom or is this someone's bathroom? Which towel should I use to dry my hands off? Is this like a, a decorative towel or is this actually a towel I'm allowed to use? This isn't my space. I'm not completely at ease here. I'm not completely free when I'm a guest in someone else's home. In our own home, at least, we are comfortable with everything. We know where everything belongs. There won't be any surprises. We know how the conversation will go. We can often be the ones who lead the conversation. But in someone else's home, you have less control. You don't know where the conversation will go. You don't know what is going to appear on the table. And even more, when you are provided for as a guest, you feel obligated to the other person. Like you owe them something for their hospitality. In our culture, there's nothing worse than owing someone, is there? That's why if someone does something for me, I very quickly turn around and do something for them. We don't want to be indebted to anyone. And if we're their guest, we are indebted to them for everything they are doing for us. And on top of all of those generalities about being a guest, there are the specifics of this situation. Other reasons Paul might not want to be a guest. Lydia is a woman. And no doubt there are many in that conservative culture who would have frowned on Paul and his companions staying in the house of a woman or a group of women. Not only that, but as we've said, Lydia is likely a marginalized woman, a stained woman, possibly living on the margins of the society. To accept her hospitality would be for Paul to associate himself with her marginalization, with her outsider status. Here's the big picture. If Paul goes to stay in Lydia's house, he can't control what people are going to say or think. He can't control who she is or where the conversations might go. On top of that, Paul is going to find himself as dependent on a sister in Christ, might feel obligated to her. In a profound sense, as a guest, he will not be in control He will be vulnerable. But here's what we need to understand this morning, of course. That becoming a guest is the essence of the gospel. We consider the opening words of John's gospel, where Jesus is described as a guest. Jesus was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own And his own people did not accept him. At the heart of the gospel is the message that Jesus comes to our world as a guest. He is a guest in Mary's womb. He's a guest in the home of Mary and Joseph. He's a guest in the house of Simon the Pharisee. He's a guest in the house of Martha. He's a guest at the wedding in Cana. He's a guest on the road to Emmaus, even after his resurrection. Jesus comes to the world as a guest. He does not come as a person of privilege. He is not a comfortable and secure host in his own space in control of what is happening. Rather, he comes as one on the margins who relies on and receives the hospitality and good grace of others. We remember that text. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. 
And yet here is the amazing thing. It is precisely in his role as a guest, as one without power, without comfort, without security, as one who is not at home. It is precisely in his role as a guest that Jesus embodies and brings about the kingdom of God in our world. It's not from a position of comfort and control that he touches lives and brings healing, but as he is received as a guest into different contexts. We can think about the fact that there's sometimes an exchange that happens as Jesus is a guest. These remarkable moments, even again on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is invited in as a guest and suddenly he is the host, breaking bread and thanking God as the host would in the home. But he's only received into that role after entering as a guest and being invited then to take on that role of host. It is from a position of humble receptivity that the love, the grace, and the healing of Christ comes to people's lives. Now this is a lesson that the church in Canada is having a hard time to learn. When we think about the mission of the church, we tend to think first of how the church might serve as a host to other people, how we might provide for others, how we might open our building for others, how we might use our gifts and our power and our resources to serve others. The church has been in a position of privilege for so long, it's hard for the church to get its head around the idea that it might become a guest with Christ in the culture, to offer love and compassion from a position of vulnerability rather than privilege. It's hard for us to learn that we must become humble and gracious enough to be welcomed by others into the conversations they are having, to be welcomed by others into the work that they are doing. Certainly this is a lesson that we are learning in Quebec. It is a lesson I think we're learning across the country. It is a lesson that we have to learn because very few people trust the church in the first place. But it is also a lesson we have to learn because it is of the essence of the gospel. Let me just say, uh, tell a, bis, a brief story um, about the Jazz Vespers. I mentioned it to a couple of people during the coffee hour. I shared this, I think, also during the commissional cohort. Um, we have this Jazz Vespers, and I would invite a musician from Montreal. There are lots of jazz musicians in Montreal. And I invited one fellow uh, who was referred to me, or I was referred to him, and I called him up, Mike Rudd, and I said, Mike, would you like to come and perform at our Jazz Vespers? It's, you know, it's kind of an open format. Uh, you would play some music. I would offer some reflections on what it is to be human. It's not a specifically Christian event necessarily. or not focused on preaching the gospel or anything like that. And Mike Red said, I'm not sure you want me. Uh, he said, uh, I'm an atheist, like a kind of strict atheist. He belongs to the Humanist Society of Montreal. And I said, well, I don't mind that you're an atheist. Come and share your music with us. So he came and he shared his music. And he actually won a Juno for the particular album from which he was performing that uh, Jazz Vespers. And all of the songs were based on Montreal and literature that comes out of the life of Montreal. And one of the songs tells a story of a young girl, a young woman from uh, St. Henry District, which is a poor district of Montreal, and is a story of her being exploited and taking advent- taken advantage of by an older man, becoming pregnant, etc. And my kids, who are, you know, 14, 
12, 11, 10, and I can't remember their ages at the time, but young enough, are sitting in the front row of the Jazz Vespers listening to this music and to this song, and I'm just thinking, please let this all just be going over their heads that they're not resonating with this. Um, but that's what it means. In that context, I was kind of the host in that space, right? And yet what I was inviting to happen was to let someone else become the host in our own space and me to become a guest. And when that happens, there's all kinds of risk because I didn't know what songs he was necessarily going to sing and I didn't know where the conversation was going to go. But that's what it means to be a guest with Christ in a particular context. To follow Jesus is to become a guest with Jesus. To follow the risen Jesus is with our whole attitudes and actions as individual persons and as a body to become those who are defined by a movement out into the neighborhood and into the world and into relationships with those who are around us. It means entering their territory, often the territory of those who are marginalized, entering their space, entering their context, entering into gracious conversation with them. And as we do so, we might have the opportunity, as we are invited, to share something of who we are and of what we believe and what the Spirit is saying to us in our own lives. We tend to think it's easy to be a guest. This might begin to sound like it's such an easy thing. Well, the church, it's hard work being a host. Now we're just going to be a guest, which is, just seems too easy. We think there's a kind of passivity in being a guest. And in fact, it's very difficult to be a guest in the way that Christ was a guest. It requires grace and strength, not weakness. It takes wisdom from a position of vulnerability to embody the love of Christ for others. I think what's interesting about this text is that it leaves that question open. What did Paul do? How did Paul respond to the invitation of Lydia? I had a little debate with Diane after the sermon for the first time around, because she's convinced that the story actually tells us that Paul accepted the invitation. She was even pulling out the Greek on her phone to show me that Paul, based on the tense of the verb, must have accepted the invitation. Maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong. Given where my sermon has gone, I want to leave it open-ended. I want to leave it open. Did Paul accept the invitation? I don't think the text tells us whether he did or not. It just ends by saying... She prevailed upon us. And what I also want to say is that the most faithful thing Paul could have done is to say yes. Is to say, yes, Lydia, we will come and we will be your guest. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.